my goal in changing education is to allow kids to have some control over what they're learning. Boom, what's up everyone? Welcome to Simulation. I'm your host, Alan Sakyan. Very, very excited and grateful to be talking about how to raise successful people. We have joining us the godmother of Silicon Valley, Esther Wojcicki. Hello. Hello. I am so excited to be here. Thank I you cannot, for coming on. Yes, well, I'm honored. Thank you so much. Likewise, extremely <laughs> grateful. Your work over the years has been so profoundly impactful on our entire world. So we're going to have a blast unpacking this. Super pumped. For those that don't know Esther's background, Esther is the author of How to Raise Successful People. That's coming out in May. Check that out in the links below. Also the author of Moonshots in Education. That link is below as well. She's known as the godmother of Silicon Valley. Also as the most influential educator in contemporary times. She has a pedagogy called TRIC, which stands for Trust, uh, Respect, Independence, uh, Collaboration, and Kindness. And she's for 36 years been in... Uh, passing along scholastic journalism into our world in programs in high schools and beyond. Her Palo Alto Media Arts Center has 700 students at it right now and she's raised three of the most successful women in the United States. She consults with the Department of Education, she's the Vice Chair at Creative Commons, Chief Learning Officer at Planet 3. What do you not do is the better question. <laughs> you have such an epic, epic background, Esther. Uh, well, I'm not the world's greatest cook. <laughs> That's the one thing. <laughs> yes, yes. And, and all of these links are below for everyone to explore. Esther, let's start with this. Let's the the wash way, the wash way. I yes, love it. the wash way. I love it. I love it. And the kids embody this too. It's so beautiful. Start with this big history perspective. We find ourselves as stewards of Earth. What is your current take on the state of humanity? Um, well, I would say the current state of humanity. Um, it needs a lot of help. We have had a lot of problems, and we and they get seem to be getting worse, not better. And um, so I'm an optimist. I really believe in people. I think that the basic human being is a good person and wants to do the right thing. Somehow we get diverted and somehow we get, um, our opinions change for no logical reason. And so we end up sort of being angry and nasty to each other when in fact, there's no reason why this should be happening. The world is actually in a much better place than it's ever been. There are fewer people in poverty than ever before, but we're still fighting with each other like crazy and we don't respect each other. It's a major problem. And so I have taken on this Herculean effort, <laughs> <That> <laughs> which is. is a little crazy, but I'd like to make people aware of that, that actually you will be happier lead a much more satisfying life. You will be passionate about the things you're doing when you're doing things to make the world a better place. And it starts early, very early. Um, yes. As a matter of fact, should I tell you how early? Yes, let's, <laughs> let's, this, this synthesis is fantastic. And yeah, it does start very early. This mm. is kind of like our next big thing is that is ages zero to five, are so crucial. And we like to, you know, we're talking about this earlier, we like to think of things as seeds. 
children are seeds, they need the right nutrients. That's absolutely true. So, you know, that little baby you just gave birth to, or you now are nurturing in your house, it's much smarter than you think, much smarter. And it's picking up all these clues. I don't care if it can't walk yet and whether it can't, you know, feed itself yet. I'm telling you, it's learning. Yeah. And so what you're doing, it's observing. It's kind of interesting to see how different children are from different cultures. You know, so you go to them to like Japan, for example, and you compare the children in Japan with maybe the children in Italy or maybe France. They all, they can't, they're pre-verbal, but they all have picked up the culture already. Mm -hmm. They're like their parents and their parents haven't lectured them. They're not taking a test. They are, that's who they are. I mean, every one of them comes into the world it's like a flower. You have to take care of it and nurture it, or like a plant or a tree. Yes, yes. They're all special. So you have to take really good care of them, and you have to realize that they are learning early on. Yes. And not only that, they do what they see you doing. Yes, yes, yes. This, <laughs> this, this, is, this is one of the quotes in your book, the Khalil Gibran quote, your children are not your children. They are the sons and daughters of life's longing for itself. They come through you, but not from you. And though they are with you, yet they belong not to you. And you have another phrase in your book, your child is not your clone. Yes. And we're gonna unpack that as well. Um, this was one that so deeply resonated with me. You, you, let's just dive a little bit deeper into this age zero to five. This, you're right, it's just, they're just processing the stimuli of their environment from the moment they're born into it. That's right. And so what are they absorbing? Are they absorbing stress? Is there food insecurity? Because that's gonna cause stress. Is there yelling happening around them? That's gonna cause stress. Is, do they have the creative toys and, and, and experiences? Fresh air, all of the water, the loving and compassion of a mother? Right. And father, are they going to have that? And so all these things mold what the child becomes. And these are such for, um, formative years. But they're really formative years. And I, lo I know a lot of people don't think of their children like that. They're just like, oh, the baby's over there. And <laughs> I'm not kidding. Do you see the baby? Well, <laughs> it's not doing much of anything right now. No, but honestly, that baby is doing more than you think it's doing. Yeah. And so one of the areas that um, I think parents get trapped in, you know, right away the baby comes home from the hospital with the mom and dad, and then it's like, oh, should we put him in a separate room? You know, uh, you know, maybe he's going to be lonely in there. No, 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 let's put him in, well, he'll sleep right here in the same bed, right? So uh, it's a movement called co-sleeping. Co-sleeping. Yep, co-sleeping. <clears throat> interesting. This so, was so interesting when you wrote this in your book about how you just, you, you birth a child into the world and then you're holding it in the hospital and then what is it, three days, yes. you get in the hospital and then all of a sudden it's like, good luck and have fun. <laughs> That's true. It's like good luck and have fun. I had to request an extra day in the hospital because I didn't know how to change diapers, give the child a bath and so forth, all these things. and um, but. I'm telling you that they learn early on what 
what your, they can sense your feelings. They can sense your stress. They learn all these different things. So when you put them in the bed with you, and then you want them to move out. Oh, they seem to be doing really well. God, they're a month old, let's just move them out. Let me tell you, that kid already knows when I go to sleep, I sleep in the big bed. And they do not want to move out. They already know. So then there are all these temper tantrums and screaming and crying and so forth. And then the parents give in. Of course. You know? The natural soothing is another thing you wrote about that was fascinating. What is they, it the, for French that have the natural the, soothing? Right. You, the child needs, the first thing they need to learn to do, parents, is to soothe themselves and to put themselves to sleep. So you do have some kids that have colic, so that's a different story. You know, you have to help them when they have some kind of a physiological problem. But your average baby doesn't have that. And so your average baby kind of likes its space. It likes its crib. It likes to be able to be in a space where it can do what it wants. And so you shouldn't project onto that baby the fact that, you know, you really want it in bed with you so that you can make sure that it's okay, you know, that it's breathing properly that, and all these things. I'm telling you, the majority of babies, majority, like 95% of them do really well. And so the first thing they're learning is how to self-soothe, how to put themselves to bed, and then this is just the beginning of independence. Yes. And what you want to do is to have your child be as self-sufficient and independent and feel good about themselves. So this is on a trajectory where they feel good about themselves. Yes, yes. This is, this is so starting at you literally right when they are born, you can either put them on the path of, of helping them with their independence or coddling them from coddling, the That's yeah. right. Coddling, it's the coddling of the American child, yeah. the American brain. There's a book out there yes. called The Coddling of the American Brain. It's a very good book. Yes. And um, it talks about what we're doing to our kids by over protecting them, over-coddling them. And one of the things that we're doing is really, unfortunately, starting right away, the minute that you come home. So if you look online and you search how to get my child to sleep, you will see there are parents out there whose child is three, four, five, maybe six even, who do not want to get out of the parental bed. Yes. They, want, they still want to sleep in bed with mom and dad and um, so I think that parents just need to be aware that they're they're actually not doing their kids a favor by doing that by overprotecting. yes this the book how to uh, the, the book um, calling of the American mind Jonathan Haidt and then there was another co-author um, the book there versus kind of the book of trick and the book of your, ped of your pedagogy of, of, of how to raise successful people is they're, they're, they're very important to distinguish between, like you're giving this example, you leave the hospital, you good luck and have fun, what do you do, how do you, how do you teach the ind independence, how do you teach the self-soothing, there's so many other things like this, and you give great examples of this, of, of just really simple questions about if the child, would, would you like to eat, 
Now, no. how, what, what choice would you like to eat? Would you like to try and put your shoes on yourself? Right. Um, and just being patient with their independence growing over time. That's right. You give them independence over time. And um, there's a lot of things that you can do early on. You know, like even with a six-month-old child. And, you know, you can give them different things for them to self, they can eat themselves and um, give them choices. Uh, I think, I just remember, you know, when my kids were little that the diet was really prescriptive. You know, you were supposed to give them exactly what the doctor said. They came, I, don't, I haven't seen them recently. They were little jars of baby food. Mm -hmm. I don't know, maybe they have phased out, mm -hmm. I don't know. But, um, you know, you, but today, they have an opportunity to do finger foods by themselves. There's a lot of finger foods. And also, it turns out that if, we're, if we don't give our kids an opportunity when they're young to try a lot of different foods, then when they get older, they're allergic. So to, now we have this the nut peanut, allergy. Nut allergy. I mean, we have the nut allergy little bit epidemic. Of, of peanut powder could potentially um, train them, their, their build up the immune system. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, they can have uh, peanut butter on a little cracker. And, but I remember that also that was prohibited. You can't know, the, the only thing they would be able to have would be bananas and applesauce and rice. Mm, pretty boring diet, right? <laughs> and so, and that's basically what they had. And I, hopefully that diet is out of phase, mm -hmm. out of uh, vogue now, I should say. Um, because it's really, first it's boring for the kids. And um, then they're not building up any of these other um, adaptations to the food that we're eating. So, yeah. you know, I just want to mention one thing. My yes. daughter, Janet, she's in Japan now, and she's studying the nutrition habits of the Japanese. Oh, and she awesome. wants to know, like, why the Japanese live such a long time? And why are they, they seem to be so healthy? Yes. And um, their children don't seem to be having temper tantrums about the food. You should go to a nursery school in Japan and see what they give the kids for, this is a one-year-old kid. What do they do? Well, he gets Japanese food, gets soup, mm -hmm. he gets all his food in a, a little tray, yes, yes. and he's expected to eat that and no temper tantrum. Here's yeah. your food, there you go, and you know, yeah. you can use a spoon too and so forth. Guess what? Mm -hmm. In porcelain dishes. In porcelain, whoa. Porcelain. Yeah. Yeah, you. And then she saw that <laughs> the second, the two-year-olds, they get the same thing. Three-year-olds get a little bit more choice. choice. And, um, but these kids, they're wow. amazing. Well-behaved. Well-behaved, I'm, I'm telling you. <laughs> you had that same story of, of when your children went to the restaurant and was it Switzerland or was it France? Um, and uh. then there was a big uh, issue with the way they were behaving compared to the children at the local. It uh, was terrible. Yeah. <laughs> it was, yes, we were in Switzerland. Switzerland By the way, yeah. all the Swiss and the French children, they are all taught early on, you know, that there's multiple courses and that you have to sit politely and wait for that course. I think American children, they don't get that training. <laughs> So my children, of course, moving over to Switzerland at that point, they were not welcome in the restaurant. Because, I mean, I just remember two of them were under the table. This is not appropriate in a fancy restaurant. <laughs> this is great that Janet's studying different cultures from around the world and taking these best principles and how to potentially um, 
make it uh, so that we can <clears throat> have more well-behaved. Maybe children starting one around the world could start using porcelain <laughs> dishes as they as they eat and have a great behavior. And um, now, but you know, balancing this out a little bit. This is maybe this is, will be an interesting conversation to have with you. Is it Amy Chow? Is her name from Chu? Chu. Amy Chu from um, Tiger Parenting. Tiger Mom. Tiger Mom. Tiger Mom. Yeah. And so um, there's this, let's just put these kind of on, let's pretend there's a spectrum, right? There's one side is this Tiger Mom, Tiger Parenting, and the other side is Trick, Trick Pedagogy, the, right. the Wojway. And then that there is certain times that maybe like the, if the child's like refusing to eat, I mean, they need nutrients, right? So then, there's let, let me just tell you, yes, there's yes. never been a kid that starved himself to death. <laughs> just want you to know. Okay. But there's a lot uh, yes. of very stressed out parents. That's true. Yes. So this is an interesting balance. It's kind of like you know, you're give, you're like you said in the in the initial video, you want to give children enough of a of the of their decisions and what they strive to learn about at the same time as like if they're refusing to maybe learn language or they're refusing to learn some aspect that's like really important to, to child development maybe there has to be a little bit of tiger influence so like for example there's a lot of kids that don't learn to speak on schedule yes yes and so what do you do about that well some kids actually need help and they need speech therapy and in those cases that that's fine what you're trying to do is help them communicate I don't think the kids ever complain about that. So that's a valid concern. Um, you know, if your kid isn't willing to eat their vegetables, mm. um, you know, and you have a yes. big temper tantrum, you as the parent, well, I don't think this helps. And it doesn't promote good behavior. And, and then it doesn't promote the independence that you're hoping to get. So one of the things, I mean, food, food choices somehow in America seem to be totally Italian. All children are pasta lovers. Pasta. All they want to do, pasta, pizza, spaghetti, more pasta, more pizza, spaghetti, whatever, you know, pizza, pizza, pizza. And so, um, but I think what's happened is that we're just, they, we're just following into all these things that, you know, that we're in charge of the child's happiness. We don't let the child take responsibility in their own way. You give them some choices and let them eat. I tell you, they won't starve. Yeah, Never yeah. seen a kid starve yet. So then there's like an authoritarian way to say you have to eat your vegetables and then there's maybe a more collaborative way to ask questions about why they're not eating their vegetables and kind of work with them on maybe making an incentive system for getting them to eat their vegetables. There's, so this there, kind there's of a lot of different ways of doing that. What happens is that children actually model what they see. Yes. So if you, the parent, are not eating your vegetables, why would you expect your child to eat the vegetables? Or if your child is eating this mush, you know, and they see you eating, I don't know, fine dining, <laughs> they're probably not going to be so excited about eating their mush. Um, so yes. there's a, a lot of that going on. Yeah, there's, there's so many stories that you give around um, a building independence uh, and, and trust 
with the with children as they're growing up and this is part of the trick pedagogy so this is really cool that you would you would you would go with you know and look at coupons uh, for for when you went grocery shopping together and you'd organize them would they would the kids would organize them and then when you would take them to to the store to target or to a store to to go and and and, and purchase what um, you need for groceries that you would sit in the in the, near the the front, or even potentially drop them off once they're old enough, and uh, and let them go and shop through the store, getting what they need within budget, within budget, and then uh, and then slowly they would build up their independence that way, and then they would even understand how to use a a card and where that money came from, how to balance the books at the end of of the month to make sure that the, all everything was correct, and these are these little tiny incremental steps towards independence and trust. That's right. So I, I built those up as time went on. Um, so it started with, you know, when they were really little, I would just remember Anne had this rather large high chair thing and she had lots of different food on there and she fed herself, whatever. And then she even cleaned up, or her version of cleaning up. She <laughs> swept everything she didn't want onto the floor. Okay. But then um, from there, you know, I always took them to the store with me because then I didn't have any babysitters. So we all went to the store together. So they learned how to shop. Mm -hmm. And as they got a little older, five or six, we were coupon cutters. And they all on Sunday, the paper came and then everybody had their little scissors and they cut out the coupons. And as time went on, they actually used to organize the coupons in different orders and like, what do we want to buy this week or what don't we want to buy? And then they, they used their math skill. They applied yeah. whatever math skills they had, you know, to like, how much are we going to save? And, yes. Um, yes. and is this, then I had them, that was back in an era before they were actually, um, before people read labels. My kids were reading labels because I didn't let them have um, a variety of preservatives and I wasn't interested in them eating red number five. So they would, they couldn't yeah. read yet, but they would look at the labels That's like, great. ooh, at number, a young age. Yeah, at a very yeah. young age. We can't buy this because it's got this in it. Mm, yeah. So um, that, was, that was basically a lot of my training. It's, so if you go to the store by yourself, you know, with your friends, you know what to look for and what to buy and what things to think about as well. Not just, I'm not in charge. You can think for yourself. Yes, yes. There is, and there's this, this another really good story in here where the, with, with, with swimming as well, is that rather than being so fearful of the, of the children entering into the pool is go and within the first year or two, ha teach them how to swim right. and then they become independent. Right. And then that was that, that hilarious story. Was it Anne that jumped in the... It, the, was, it, Janet? Was, it was Janet. Janet jumped into the pool when she was 13 months old. 13 months. And then some guy got up, ran, and jumped into the pool after. Oh, no. To, to save her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, she knew how to swim already. She was actually really miffed. And, uh, you know, she's a 13-month-old. She walked pretty early at 11 months, and then she could swim. And um, so then after this happened, it was our local swim and tennis club. Um, I then had to alert all my friends that she can swim and that you know you do not have to rescue her. Yeah. So, you know, she didn't have much hair. You know, she's one of these kids that developed hair later on, so she was sort of bald. 
but she could swim and she could talk. <laughs> and so, yeah, it was pretty, pretty remarkable. But I did that because we had a, a pool in the backyard and I didn't want to be in a position where, you know, I was like frantic all the time. I, the pool was fenced, but you know, there's all those stories about kids get in when the fence is somehow has a, a hole in it or whatever, so I didn't want to be one of those. Yeah, yeah. So she could swim from one end of that pool to the other. Yes. All three of them could do that. Yes, yes. And um, as a matter of fact, the swimming became such an important part of their life that when they were like four years old, they joined the swim team. And then when Anne was five, Anne had the distinction of being the best butterfly, uh, the champion butterfly swimmer for the five and under category. Of course, she didn't have a lot of competition. Yeah, five and under. <laughs> Let yeah. me tell you, not, this was Northern California. So, you know, most people don't teach their kids how to do the butterfly. You have so many of these stories around like what we just described at with swimming or what we described with, with Target and, and learning how to, how to shop, these, these stories of incremental independence. Now, like, now, now teach, us, teach us about this. I think this is a very cool, very cool um, um, way to explain a, a reoccurring theme of what parents deal with with children is that parents think that you can do go and join do music do sports do extracurricular do this do that and so then where's the choice for the child how does yeah how does the child get to you know you balance this out with your three girls that they were able to choose what they found most interesting at the same time as you would maybe ask them questions about why they were finding it most interesting or what they would like to give up their time doing instead, these types of questions. So there's the, there is the conflict between me and Amy Chua, the tiger mom. So she felt that she knew best and that the child had to take a specific piano lesson and constantly practicing the piano till they got really good at it. And, over and over and over again. So there's a lot of stories in her book. She puts them in the book herself of what she did to her kids if they would not follow her instructions. And in one case, one of her daughters, a three-year-old, I think, at that time, she put her out in below freezing temperatures without a jacket because the kid refused to practice the piano. So I think this is you know, not something that I would go along with at all. So one of my children, actually Anne, was the one with the incredible musical ability. She could play by ear at age five. I gave her the opportunity, either you want to play the piano or you don't want to play the piano. Maybe you want to do something else. Mm -hmm. um, I guess if I were more like the tiger mom, I would have liked, you're playing the piano and I don't care what you're thinking about. And I mean, there's more stories from Amy Chua's book about other things she did. You know, she would take their stuffed animals and throw them away. Um, you know, there were, and if you hear about what her children think about their childhood now, how they reflect on it, uh, they all, both of them say that it was very stressful childhood, very difficult for them. But you know, in Amy Chua's defense, she thought this was the best way to parent. You know, so she came from a society where you, the parent knew it all and they told the child what to do. And so, you know, she was doing what she considered the best job. She tried really hard 
to be a really good parent, and this is the way that she, this was her strategy. What I'm saying is that um, in today's world, that strategy only produces kids that are depressed, and kids that feel like they have no passion in life, and kids that are really, um, you know, we have an epidemic of kids right now that are taking anti-anxiety medications. Or, I mean, just look at the statistics in college. More than 60% of the college students that have been polled feel that they have no control and feel like they don't know, they feel depressed about the world and about their lives. The um, curriculum's being pushed down their The throat. curriculum's being pushed down their throats. They can't decide what they want to do. The parents are pushing, pushing you uh, know, if they're not in the right college or they're not taking the right thing or... Um, these are their statistics online that yeah, you, know, yeah. you can look up and yeah. I mean this is not something that um that is hard to find and Correct. you know so I'm what I'm just trying to say is that it is best if you give kids choice and let them decide if they really want to do it my theory with my daughters was I want you to try this if you try it and then you don't like it, well, we'll try something else. Yeah, yeah. We'll give you that opportunity. Yeah. And so Anne also was very gifted at tennis, of all things. Mm -hmm. and, um, and the tennis coach was, I, I don't think she ever recovered because <laughs> Anne did not want to play tennis. It's really sad. She could oh, have been like a tennis champ. Interesting. Okay, but she's happy she's a 23 and Me champ instead. Yeah, now, yeah. <laughs> but she could have been a, a tennis champ. She went, instead of going for tennis, she went for ice skating. And she became, you know, she didn't, she ended up going through all those, the series of ice skating and ended up actually being on a synchronized ice skating performance team. So, you know, she was out there twirling around and doing all those things that everybody gets impressed by. But so yeah. I let her pick. And did the same story happen with Anne when the opportunity to work at the bio, biotech uh, venture capital company in New York? Oh. Yeah. The, yeah. So there was a there was a period where 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 she um, had this great opportunity at post college, and then you as a mom were like, you know, this is a great choice, and she wanted to babysit. That's right. Instead. She put up a little sign at this same swim club where she had been the um, butterfly champ. It's like, babysitter available, college graduate. Every, it was like <laughs> bees and honey. They were like, everybody wanted her. And she met so many people. She had such a great time. She likes taking care of kids. And she was babysitting and babysitting. And she had this family and that family. Actually, I think she still knows these families. And then she got this call. Well, actually, she went to a job fair. They don't have them anymore. Now they're all online. But there was a job fair in Santa Clara County. And she went to a job fair because her mom said, this might be a good idea. What do you think? After graduating from college with this degree in biology, maybe you should think about something else, right? Yeah, yeah. So she did me a favor and went to the job fair. And then she came home, and I said, so how was it? She's like, not really very good. I just met one person. And, and then she was like, I'm going to babysit. It's like, Anne, <laughs> four years at college, whatever. And then this one person turned out to be somebody who phoned her. I guess she gave him a phone number. And um, he had a, 
position available in New York. And he's like, would you like to come and be interviewed in New York? She's like, I have too many kids to take care of. I don't know about that. I'll think about it. So she told me this. It's like, Ann, what? <laughs> and so, yeah, yeah. Anyway, she didn't go. And he called back again a week later or so. It's like, how would you like to stay in the Helmsley Hotel? He, I think he had figured her out. <laughs> and she's like, well, I'll think about it. And finally, he, she said to me, well, I think I might want to go to New York because I get to stay in this really fancy hotel and they're going to give me really fancy dinners, so I'll go for the hotel. And, and so then she went and she got interviewed. It was a great company. Um, it was a, a, a Swedish investment company. And uh, she liked them. They liked her. She, they offered her a job. She came home, and she's like, don't think I'm going to take it. Can you believe that? As a parent, it's how a, do you handle that? Yeah. Well, I was like, oh my god, how, how long is this going to go on? Yeah, anyway, yeah, yeah. tried to be supportive. Of their meaning and purpose. But be, that's right. It yeah. was like she really wanted to do this. And so and it, the long story, or the short story, uh, this could be a very long story, is that you know she finally decided that this was a good thing to do. But she had to decide it herself. Yeah, and she yeah. did. And then she moved to New York. And it was a fantastic company and a great job, Investor International. And she loved them. Yeah. And, um, and that was the beginning of her Wall Street career. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. but I'm telling you, it, it didn't start really smoothly. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. want you to know Janet and Susan also have similar stories. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> These are reoccurring stories of, of parents and their relationship with their children where the, the most meaning and purpose for the child comes from their ability to pursue what they want their entire life. And that is very tough sometimes for a parent to say that there's no money in that. And then that's when the whole thing comes to a crazy whirlwind well, of... Well, I've had some students whose parents, I mean, really, the parents needed psychological support because the child decided not to be a doctor or a lawyer or you know go into business but instead they wanted to go into the arts, arts yes. and uh, I understand parents you know because you know a lot of artists don't earn any money just like my father was an artist and we kind of starved um, so I understand that but um, you know there's there's ways to get them to talk to them about it give them an opportunity to try what they want to do who knows, you know, they could easily be super great actors, just like my former student, James Franco. Exactly, yeah. He's a great actor. Yeah. And, um, you know, yeah. and he wasn't, his parents weren't so sure that that was the right career for him yeah, either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's Ho in the book too. Yes, hopefully yeah. the arts and the philosophies uh, end up actually being even more uh, well paid uh, in, the, in the future, in the age of automation. Um, I know there's still a lot to, I really wanted to touch on birth order, but that's, you know, this is a complicated thing, like it's a big, like parental dynamics and family dynamics change a lot when you have just one child versus when you have two or even three. 
then the older might take care of the younger. If there's just one, is there a lot of you know, secure attachment or insecure attachment? Those are very important traits for also this long-term, like what happens to that seed between the ages of zero and five. You had three, so you had a, you know, how many years apart? Well, um, they were all born within five years. Within five years, okay. Yeah. Okay, so they were all kind of like- They were close, yeah. yes. There was a lot of um, jealousy there. Um, they're typical, they're normal, they're regular kids. And um, so I put Susan in charge of taking care of Janet when she was 18 months old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she liked it. And um, Janet, Janet actually liked it too. Um, yeah. But you know, I was there supervising. So I can tell you that I devoted the, all my time to being with the kids because uh, I had been a teacher for a year or two, and then um, back in the 1970s, it was not in vogue for mothers to work. So the pressure on me was to quit. As a matter of fact, um, I, I was teaching when I was pregnant, and the school rules were that the minute you showed, the minute you could see you were pregnant, you had to leave because whoa. you were giving bad ideas to the students. Oh, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> really, instead like, of being able to be responsibly teach that process, that, yeah, yeah. About so fortunately, happened. I was able to last all nine months because I was so tall. I am so tall still, right? And that somehow, the you couldn't see that I was pregnant, and yeah. you know, because somehow Susan managed to stretch out as opposed to go forward. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. But otherwise, I would have had to quit. So anyway, I did stop teaching at that point and devote a lot of time. I had nothing else to do, you know. It's like they didn't let you do yeah. anything else. You were just, I was Mrs. Stanley Wojcicki. I didn't even have a first name. Yeah, so your, your husband, Stan, physics professing at Stanford and traveling a lot. You're raising your, your three children um, a lot of the time. Now, um, you have these really powerful stories as well of you teaching the girls about how to save, uh, how to save money for you know Ron wanting to renovate your floors, saving money from the grocery budget every single month to be able to renovate the floors, and like these stories go a really long way for teaching kids about independence and, and respect, trust, collaboration, kindness, all this kind of stuff. Um, I want to, I want to, um, I want to explain how you know this ended up kind of like starting for you with with the scholastic journalism 36 years of this now right which is crazy it's 10 years older than I am and I'm just like <laughs> how have you been doing that for that long that's how you become a master at something right is when you've done it that long you you know you really playful with kids they love you because you play with them you're not an adult you're with them that's They're, right yeah and then that that helps a lot but then there were serious cases of you know maybe you know drinking happening in in the high school and you're like that's not okay and that right. other kind of stuff so you know when to be serious right you know when to be playful and balancing those those out um throughout the years so tell us about this you know this these 36 years building up this classic journalism up to 700 uh, kids now at Paul to Media Arts Center. Right. Yeah. So I started that in 1984, and uh, there were only about 19 kids in the program at that time. And uh, I wanted to be a journalist. I'm trained as a journalist, um, but I couldn't. You know, there was no internet then, so you were either driving to San Francisco to be a journalist, 
or you weren't going to be a journalist. So I was like, okay, I guess I won't do that. I'll just teach journalism instead. And so um, luckily I got that job teaching journalism. I, had to, I just had two classes actually, the beginning class and then another more advanced class. They were really small. Then I taught English and, uh, and I also taught math because they needed an, another teacher for that. And um, what I discovered after just one year of teaching by the system that they told me to do, to use, was that um, no one was learning. Yeah. Nobody. The, the lecture. Kid, the, it was a lecture based. I had a book called Press Time. I don't know if it's still in print. But basically you read the chapter, there were questions at the end, you answered those questions, you took a test on Friday, and then you moved to the next chapter. So this was the whole book. And at the I mean, I was realized that, oh my God, I'm so bored. Well, anyway, how are they doing? And well, you're doing it five times a day. That's yeah. right, repeatedly. Yeah, and so yeah. I was like, oh no. So um, I had a choice. The choice was to throw away the curriculum, get a therapist, help me, right? Or just to quit. And so um, I decided I would just take a risk and I threw away the book, yeah. threw away the curriculum. Yeah. And instead, you know how they have like newspapers free for all the, you know, you go down and pick up a newspaper. Yeah. So instead I just used the regular local newspaper free. I, you know, it was like- You're rebelling. There's, <laughs> you know, you're being Copernicus. You're, all the teachers are like, don't do it. Don't do it. You're going to get in trouble. That's, that's right. And so I did that. But anyway, I waited to be fired. They didn't even notice. They never noticed I threw away the book. They just noticed that the kids seemed to be pretty happy. Yeah. And, um, but the other thing that I did, um, that they did notice that my classes were collaborating. Did you know that collaboration until just even maybe eight years ago? What was it called? Cheating. Cheating. Yeah, yeah. Collaboration was not allowed. And here I was in 1984, 85, 86, and my kids were collaborating. It's like, you know, you've got a whole cheating, a group of kids in here cheating all the time, and you are sanctioning it. So um, they gave me a couple weeks, three weeks to fix it. It's like, it cannot continue. They cannot keep talking to each other. The next time I come into your class, I want them to be listening to you, no talking, no collaboration, none of this. And so I was going to be fired. Yep. So what did I do? Hmm. So I decided that who was I going to get to help me? The kids. Yeah. The kids. Yeah. So I said to them, I told them what was happening. I told them the next time that I was going to be observed. I don't want a single sound in the classroom. Just read your book. Don't do anything, whatever. So they came in and the next time, it was silent. And when I talked, the kids just looked like, well, they looked sort of brain dead, but they <laughs> looked, they didn't say a word. And so I passed. And they, they asked me, how'd you make them do that? I did not tell them how I did it. <laughs> it was not, it was not part of the deal. And then you, you had this really also profound um, moment of, of, of not only learning about tossing the curriculum and enabling collaboration and, and mentorship between the students, but also you had this moment where you saw the seven um, Macs, the Macintoshes, and then you applied for a grant and you got the Macintoshes into the classroom and then the students as well as some of their parents were coming and helping you guys get used to the information technology age for journalism. That's right. So I, I 
could hardly wait to use these. Um, my program, when I first started all those years ago, I was using a typewriter. Yes, and the kids were cutting their stories out with exacto knives. Yes, I was handing out exacto knives to all the kids. They were only 19, but they all got them. And pasting the stories up with hot wax. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't no, it, it sounds like horse and buggy, right? She was riding to school on her horse. <laughs> no, <laughs> but it's close. <laughs> and so then when the Mac came out, I was so excited about this. I got this grant from the state. Only problem is I didn't know how to use them. So I had to, I, there was only one group that could help me because nobody in the school knew how to use them. And that was the kids. So I told them, I said, I got this incredible grant. I've got all these things the new technology, do you want to see? Let's open the box together. And so that's what happened. I still remember all those students that helped me with this whole technology thing. It was remarkable. And so that's the collaborative program, me collaborating with the students. They know a lot more. They were able to figure this out faster than I was. Yeah, yeah. And so when I needed something, I had a great group. It was a bunch of parents that worked, that were connected with Aldis Corporation. Mm -hmm. So Aldis was sort of predecessor for Adobe, mm -hmm. who helped and did a lot of things to help me. And then also I would frequently take groups of kids to Fry's. We all went to Fry's. Yeah, yeah. Fry's was like, was a great place to go. Yeah. You know, had this giant big horse out in front. It wasn't a real horse, of course, you know, it was a cowboy statue and um, there were always a lot of people in there it was like it had this vibrance and um, yeah we had a great time and then put this all together you have this really interesting policy of 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 mastery that i that i find so interesting rather than all the stress levels that come with testing of for the kid and the parent both which is a crazy relationship at home is this stress level of testing 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 that you give this ability for mastery where the student isn't necessarily they don't have as much stress because you say that you know as many times as you as you need revise revise get better at answering these questions figure out how to 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 best uh, uh, become educated yourself and then you can get that final revised grade at the end and then that teaches mastery decreases stress levels and then you have mentorship in the classroom you have like editors of the journals so right. they like vote their own editors in and then the editors will will work with the articles being written and they design we have some cool images of the students actually designing in the Adobe, it's crazy how the Macs went from, what was it, 85 is when you had the yes. first ones? Look well, at 87. This, 87 to yeah. this, and that's like crazy how much Isn't different. Isn't that incredible? Yeah. So, you know, I should just say, we have about 10 different publications now, and it's not just me, I'm not the only teacher, so I have six other teachers, and one of the first people that helped me set this up was a guy named Paul Candell, and he's still there, and he supervises three of the programs, and then I have two other teachers that fortunately um, they decided Michigan weather was too cold, and so they came and they're here. So we have you know, a magazine called Verde, which is a news magazine, and then C Magazine, which is a copy of the New York Times T Magazine. So we just copied their idea. We handed it out with the newspaper. 
So, but the original publication is the Campanile. Campanile is a newspaper, it's three sections, about 24 pages long, sometimes longer. Mm -hmm. And every section and every story is designed by the students. That's so awesome. They are in charge of everything. And if you saw what it looked like, people frequently see these publications and are like, you know, are the kids really doing that or are you doing that? Yeah, yeah. And I was like, you know, the kids are doing that. Not only are they doing it, they're doing it better than I could ever do okay. it. And, um, and they're raising a, funds from local businesses for advertising in the papers that's as right. well? That's right. It's self-supporting. That's huge because then they're learning entrepreneurship and relationship building in their communities, like industry level work. Right. They're all like that. So, um, you know, we have other publications as well. We have like a um, broadcast program every day in focus. And then we have website program, voice that these kids are on the story like immediately. And then we have a um, photography magazine, Proof. We, I mean, we, we even have a, we have a sports magazine, all the kids, they, they look like professional football players and everything else and pictures and they're beautiful, wonderful. And they're just kids. And it's a sports magazine called Viking. And then also recently, Paul Kandel started this program called Entrepreneurial Journalism. Entrepreneur kids get to come up with their own ideas. It's all self-supporting again. Yes. So they have a science magazine and a travel magazine. I'm telling you, we're a magazine factory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> ten, ten of the pub, ten publications. There's now. about ten publications now. Wow. And, and it includes the we have a radio pro program, KPLY, in addition. So the idea is to say to the kids, um, you know, this is century of media. If you would like to be part of one of these media programs, welcome. We want to hear what you have to say. What are your ideas for a story? And which medium do you want to be part of? We have a lot of different mediums. And so just pick the one you want to be part of. And the, but the teaching style in all those programs are the same teaching style so everybody uses the same trick method they use the same mastery based method so it's the program isn't just tied to me you know because people say oh it's just you that is able to do this other teachers can do this as well as a matter of fact all teachers can do this it's the culture of the classroom that promotes a sense of competency in the student yes and so when you give kids an opportunity to revise and to make mistakes and then not to be penalized, they learn that it's okay to do it yourself. And then the pressure for grades drops. And the plagiarism's eradicated. Plagiarism, I don't ever have a plagiarism problem. There is no plagiarism. No stress in the household then. So no I did stress, the same yeah. thing in my English classes. So they would write essay, you know, Romeo and Juliet or, you know, Catch, uh, to Kill a Mockingbird, all these essays. They wrote them until they were A-level. But I wanted the kid to write the essay, not the parent. Correct. So as long as there was no grade pressure, then the parents didn't care. They're like, sure, you write the essay till you get it right. But when there's grade pressure and you, the student gets just one chance yes, 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 to get yes. an A, then of course, you know, there's tutors and there's parents involved. And, and so that's why a lot of teachers um, 
They make the students write in class. What do you do in the real world? In the real world, in industry, you have a project that you're constantly tinkering with and deploying and, de and de further developing and making better over time. So right. this is the real world is not a filling in bubbles on a and on getting a, it right the first, the first time. time. Yeah, yeah. So the real world. So it's projects. It's working on something. It can be in social studies. You know, a paper in social studies. It can be um, in science, you know, you work on a project. All the subjects, the kids should have an opportunity to learn from their failure. And right now, school teaches kids that failure is one of the worst things you can do because if you don't do it right the first time, you don't get the right grade, and then they average those grades, and then there's a lot of grade pressure. So unfortunately, we've seen the end result of all this stress, which was this big scandal with the cheating, yes. getting into colleges. And depression and, and depression anxiety. And anxiety. Yeah, and anonymity and cyberbullying on the internet and things like that that are also kind of tearing apart at community and love and kindness. Kindness is There is no group. kindness in most of these situations, unfortunately. Because it's a winner. It's, it's a win-win. I have win seen kids body. where the, their grade is 90, knows it. 89.5 and it's not 89.6 so you can't get an A and you've been working the whole semester I can tell you a lot of your viewers will be able to identify with that yeah 80 yeah the 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 classic um, you're 0.1% away from a, a, an A an, uh, from a yeah three to a four on a, on a transcript that's a, from B to an A that's a that's a major deal and there's a lot of fight for can I do something for extra credit anything that's anything. right anything <laughs> extra credit oh my god yeah yeah that is so crazy so just let them work on the project that they're working on life yes. is a series of projects yeah yeah it is not a series of multiple choice tests yes, yeah it is a series of <laughs> of long projects that's right and there and, and you have to find meaning and purpose in every single one of those projects that's how we know we're raising successful people so one of the things that makes people happy in the world is having something that they really care about yes. a passion project and the majority of employees today don't have that feeling about the job they're working in. And so if the companies could give their employees some control of what they're doing, or let them have some say in the workplace. Google gives 20% time. Google gives 20% time. To do time. projects related to the mission outside of their work. And then right. same thing with Salesforce also gives time for them to. Right. Yeah. So my way, my latest idea, globalmoonshots.org, I started yes. this nonprofit, and the main message is give kids 20% of the time to work on projects yeah. of their choosing. It can be crocheting, it can be gardening, it can be writing apps, it can be developing a, a robot, but they should have an opportunity to t do things that they care about. Or they can be even magazines or newspapers or whatever I'm doing. Um, so that program, my journalism program, is a 20% time program that takes up about half the school. But, there's, but all kids need to have this kind of an opportunity. Yeah. And then they develop ideas about what they want to do in the world. Yes, correct. And then hopefully 
they'll do things to help save our planet. Yeah. We have a lot of faith in millennials and Gen Z to, to work on the hardest, most pressing issues, but you, have, you create environments, you create cultures. Parents and communities and teachers create cultures that enable them to do so. When you give them the, the autonomy with the, with the newspapers, with the publications that you have to, to write about complex um, issues, hard things are written about sometimes that you know sometimes you do have to step in and say and say something about you know about it and and I think that's a very important process for people to for us to make culture that gives the 20% time to to creative endeavoring you also teach about the importance of grit and growth mindsets like when someone doesn't get the editorial role there's sometimes there's what like 20 people running for five editorial positions At or something least. And then you have these great stories where the ones that don't get the editorial role are just upset and that then luckily you're able to work with them to where they continue building up their work, writing articles and partaking in. And then what they do is then they apply to Harvard, they apply to the school saying that with the story of I didn't, get, I didn't become the editor, but I continued working really hard and persevering through that with that grit and that continued tenacity. That's right. And the schools like that better than getting the senior position because it shows that you know, you're part of the team and that you know how to work through setbacks. I mean, this is not a tragedy, but a lot of kids, well, a lot of their parents think of it as a tragedy. And it's not, it's just one of the, it's a bump in the road that you need to learn how to navigate. And um, so that's, that's what they learn. And that's what I try to teach all my students that they're all part of, this is a team. I mean, all these companies, they're all team efforts. It's a team and we need to work together as part of the team. And uh, the family is a team too. Yeah. You know, and if you aren't working together as a team in the family, you know what happens. It falls apart. Yeah. 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 The, and we were chatting about the importance of Bloom Two Sigma of mentorship. That the kids that get one-on-one -on -one mentorship perform two standard deviations past the mean. And you can see here. Here might be a good example for you to illustrate this for us. But you have different ages in the the media arts center. Sometimes you have the seniors or juniors that are in the positions that are higher, helping freshmen or sophomores with an actual process. They're not just authoritarian-like saying, perform this action in, um, in Adobe, but you're actually having them do a mentorship student role where the student is practicing the skill that they learn to do themselves. That way it actually becomes them. They learn it. They can then go and teach others how to do it. This mentorship system is, critical. The mentorship system is critical. So the first child in a family gets the most attention and then the second, the second most and third is false, you know, so each child gets less mentorship and less from mm. the parents. But if you set up the culture in your family that you all work together and you help each other and you teach each other, that makes a huge difference and that's what I do in the classroom. So I have 12th graders, 11th graders, 10th graders, and the 10th graders know the least, right? So it's no problem. You know, you don't know anything, that's fine, I don't care. We will help you learn it. And if you make a mistake, no problem, we'll do it again. And so you, actually every kid in the class has a buddy. They all have buddies. What are the cubbies is the They're name? They're cubbies. Cubbies, yeah. Yes. Yeah. 
And so what used to happen is I, I would put them together and, and all the older kids would start fighting over which one they wanted for their cubby. I want this one, no, I want that one, no, I'm gonna get this. I was like, we can share the cubbies. Cubby. We have yeah, plenty of cubbies. Yeah. But, but those, these relationships then last the whole time. You come into the class, you, will, you, you can feel it in the class. There's a sense of camaraderie, a sense of caring. And you know the editors are in charge. I'm, I stand by the side, and my co-advisor, his name's Rod Satterthwaite, he stands by the side, we both stand by the side, and the kids take over. They need advice, they ask us, as opposed to we take over and we ask them. It's a very different thing. Yes. And I also have two um, coaches, so to speak, one from the Wall Street Journal, one from the Washington Post. Love that. Yeah. And there are people that retired from those positions and they are amazing and they come in and help with, they support the program. And there's a lot of retired journalists out there that would be in a position of being also, you know, they're, they're basically aides in the classroom. They do not have a teaching credential, so legally they can't have a class by themselves. But I'm telling you, they're invaluable. And that's a way for, for people to give back who might have been in a career and then you know, have retired and then want another thing that they, yes. they can do. Yes, yes. And they can, they can actually do this in an English class as well, and, um, does, or a social studies class. It doesn't have Correct. to be just a journalism Absolutely. class. Absolutely, yes. There's mentorship for every industry to student level um, for any field. Yeah, right. and that's so critical for building community. And we all need mentors. Yeah. You know, everybody needs support. And um, even even you know the principal needs support. You know everybody needs support. Yes. So yes, that's one of the things. Yes. That, and by the way, Google has a system of mentorship and support. Yes. Yeah, and that, what this is needs, like you said, creativity is being transferred into industry and uh, more time for creativity industry, just like more time for mentorship industry. Um, now, I want you to teach us about the trick in marriage. This is very oh. interesting because like marriage is, first of all, this is like a divine union with another person. It's like a very divine thing. This is, we don't just have a child with anyone. This needs to be a very well thought out process uh, both psychology is in place, both finances in place. There's like tons of variables, um, and then once that happens, I th we were talking. The divorce rate is very high in the United, like one in two almost is um, is uh, is going under divorced families. Um, I came from a divorced uh, family, Ron as well. Um, we are we're seeing kind of. Um, uh, some maybe people aren't able to work things out. Maybe their trick, the trick pedagogy is not being applied to marriage as often. But at the same time, sometimes it is important to realize that it's not the right fit. So this is balance is difficult. Teach us about about it. Apply so, to marriage. trick, trick is important in all aspects of life. It's especially important in marriage because marriage. Marriage is one, your happiness depends, number one, on the person that you decide to marry because that impacts your life. And um, so a lot of people don't think this through, but before they tie the knot, they should think this through. 
And then once you are married and have children, it's really important to remember that that person is the number one person that you should respect. Mm. And what happens when you get married is that somehow the fact that they're married, you're married and oh, you know, now they're legally bound to each other there's like, oh, well, maybe I don't have to respect them so much anymore because, you know, they can't do anything and they can't go anywhere anyway. It's kind of like, oh, they're there. So when a respect starts to erode, the whole thing starts to fall apart. And what you're doing is you're setting a model for your children yeah. of disrespect. And then when you expect your child to respect you, they don't do it. They do what they see, not what you say. Mm -hmm. And then it moves from disrespect to lack of trust, and then lack of collaboration, and then the worst of all is no kindness. Mm -hmm. So, and it they just keeps piling on top of each other. So it's important for both parties to remember why they went into the marriage in the first place and to respect that person and even when that person starts to change you know we all aged there's what are we going to do about that you know no one solved that problem yet so you know different things happen along the way and you're supposed to take good care of the other person especially if you have children together and that's what I would like to just remind people that when they get a, when they separate, get a divorce, the, everybody hurts. The children hurt, especially the partners that were together. There's no erasing the past. It's still there. Mm -hmm. All the families, the relatives, and all the people that came together for your wedding, they're all suffering with you. So maybe you should just think about this you know, in another way and um, think about perhaps not doing this because it just creates long-term problems for everybody, you know, you talk to adults and they're, they, they're still sad about the fact that, you know, 30 years ago their parents got a divorce and uh, it doesn't end. So I'd like to encourage all parents to use trick in their marriages and trick with their children and see what we can't do to make to change that statistic of you know one and two getting a divorce um anyway yes. that's my that's my so i've been married for many well, a half a century 50 years yeah yeah <laughs> okay let yeah, me, yeah. can i just tell you it's not easy it, it's, it's, not, it's, it's, hard it's not easy so my husband is a high energy particle physicist and let me tell you how much i know about particle physics zero yeah, me too. Yeah, me too. <laughs> right of course i learned a lot about it in the process of being married but we have very different interests but and it's important to support your partner in their interests. Yeah, yeah. He was busy running off to Fermi Lab in Chicago doing experiments all the time and I mean I would go over there I didn't understand anything. But then he supported me in my teaching. You know yeah. you yeah. have to be your partners in life yes. and the best thing you can do is to be partners in life and then teach that to your children.
So there's my That's teaching. It's, it's, it's so critical that, that with the stimuli that ends up occurring for the child when they're born into the world, if parents are arguing or if parents aren't doing trick, um, that, can, that can lead to, to all, the, all of that can lead to potential trauma and harm down the line. Um, I just wanted to yes. say one more thing. You know, there's a woman named Esther Peril. Yes. I really like her first name because it's like That's mine. mine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and she has a whole program on marriage. And I think her program is outstanding. And she talks a lot about what happens, you know, when somebody strays. You know, if your partner does something that... Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I recommend that people take a look at that and follow her programs and understand because, I mean, one incident like this can break up a marriage. And that marriage can last, you know, could be 80 years of and or six, 50 years of a marriage. And, um, you know, I think that they should take her course. Yeah, it's very, <laughs> it's very hard being, you know, 20, 20 or 25 or whatever age it is and looking at parents that are potentially getting divorced and, and whatnot and saying, you know, hey, is one instance of cheating really worth you to, to, to not be able to try and work something out? Um, really, you're going to spend, you know, the next 40 years away from uh, each other. Why did you even get together in the first place? Think about that. There's like all of this to still, yeah, to still unpack on that front. Um, I want to I want to hear your thoughts about the transition from uh, the shareholders to stakeholding. This is a very interesting kind of like interdependent capitalism uh, transition that is happening, especially with the automation age and with children being more involved in in creative and non-repetitive uh, tasks that are not in the crosshairs of software, but rather that are that are. Um, th that that instead of instead of the profit going just to the shareholders of the company, now we're thinking about how do we give profit to the employees, to all of the customers that have actually built the company with their purchasing power. How do we give the profits to the community that the company is in? Uh, that kind of an equation. Teach us about what you've seen with that with this transition that's occurring now. Well, so this this transition is happening now where. Companies are thinking about sharing the profits with, with the people that are actually participating. And like, for example, Amazon would be a great group to start doing this. Um, we're all buying things on Amazon and the, I mean, the most is the richest man in the world. And we're contributing to it. So it would be well, great if some of those, some of that wealth which he could never spend in a lifetime. Mm -hmm. He couldn't spend it in 10 lifetimes. Mm -hmm. Could go to help the people that are needing it. We have so many people today that need to have more income. And it's worldwide, but you know, here just in San Francisco alone, I see the, the need for, for income. But you could actually have a job you could, when you buy things, you could get some kind of a credit for it. There could be some ways that it could feed back to you. I, I am working with a, a man who has a company called Heavenly Organics. And he goes into areas of stress, like where there's war. And he hires people in those areas. And what he says that is really important is that 
people don't need money. They need a job. <laughs> they need respect from a job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so if we can somehow fig figure out in these big companies jobs, ways that they can share their profit so that you become, a, you know, somehow, you know, you're sharing in their, their wonderful success. Yes. It would be, it would be great. Now Salesforce is another great company that is trying to do a lot of these things and, um, you know, I want to say that Mark Benioff is one of my heroes mm -hmm. for supporting Proposition C, yes. working with about the homeless here yes, in San Francisco. Yes. And um, I don't know if you had any other ideas. I, I, it's an Stakeholding interest is interesting for teachers as well because they can, you know, you have a stake in the child's life outcome. The better you do as a teacher, if we can create a better uh, feedback system for uh, that you could, that there's a stakeholding that you have in how well they do so you're more dedicated. Just like, just like physicians as well. Physicians and patients is another great example that if there's, if there's no stakeholding, that's when the physician can just, you know, prescribe whatever that, um, that makes money instead of prescribing um, things that would increase the longevity and the health of, of the patient that then they can have a stake in. So it's kind of a transition to just a stakeholding system. So I definitely do have a stake in all my students, yes. which is part of the reasons that I'm doing what I'm doing. And yes. I don't just care about them as doing well in my class. I care about them as human beings. Correct. And, um, but I've always done this. I've always considered it just a big family, just a larger family, one that I'm absolutely honored to be part of their lives. And I think the doctor that is a stakeholder does the same thing. You know, they're not just trying to make money on prescribing something for you because they're going to get money from the pharmaceutical company. They actually care about you as a human being. And so we need to write these things a little more uh, clearly into more transparently into the code of teachers and students and doctors and patients. There's some malevolence that's occurring. Well, I think that in medicine it was pretty bad for a while, you know, that you were primarily concerned with making money, the number of patients you saw per hour. And, you know, the, I think that that was a real, that still is a problem. I mean, I think one of the reasons that Anne went into 23andMe is her goal is to put healthcare in the hands of the consumer. You want to know what your DNA is, what it's saying about you, what can you prevent from happening? Totally. And um, so, like for example, one thing that I found on my DNA was that I would had a predisposition to diabetes. You would never guess because I'm thin, mm. but it turns mm -hmm. out that that I have this predisposition mm -hmm. and so it helped me a lot because then I'm really careful when I I don't eat a lot of cake and cookies and totally. sweets and things like that right. but if I didn't have that test you know I would just be eating up like crazy and then I found out by accident that a large percentage of diabetics are thin I don't yeah. want to wait and have that happen to me to find correct, that out correct the preventative strategy to yeah to health right um, Okay, this, I mean, we could talk for hours. I love you so much. I love your impact so much. It's just 
Thank you so much. I love being here. You guys are great. You're doing amazing simulation. I, honestly, this is fantastic. fantastic. Thank you Thank so you much. Thank you for we, inviting me. We, we're, we're very, very grateful that you're doing what you're doing. We have a couple quick questions that we like asking on the show okay. on the way out. Okay. That's going to be fun. Okay, good. Okay. All right. The first question is, are we alone in the cosmos? Um, it's a very good question. Um, sometimes I don't think so. Sometimes I think there are other beings out there. And um, I am not sure why, but, uh, you know, I get these subtle messages that things happen for a reason. Mm, yes, yes, yes. And um, because yeah. I never started out trying to do these things. I never started mm -hmm. out with the mission of, I want my daughters to be heads of major companies. Yeah. I was, remember, I was like, could you stop babysitting, please? <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, maybe just have a job like everyone else. So, yes, I do think there might be yeah, others yeah. out there. Yeah, yeah. Mm. This could be another entire discussion. Yeah, another <laughs> whole hour. Another hour. Just you, want, yeah. you want me to stay? I'll be happy to stay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I we'll like have, it here. We'll have, to have you, we'll have to have you back for more of these, these uh, abstract thinking questions because, yes, we do like uh, discussing what could potentially be happening outside of, outside of Earth, maybe pre-birth and post-death what happens in those time periods and what is uh what what are these little these little signs that we see you there know? there are lots of little signs that we see and um and i know they're out there i just haven't had time to investigate fully but maybe on our next show maybe you can help investigate and then Help me. Let's do it. And let's have the young, the young ones too. Let's ask them also about, oh, about what yeah. they're feeling about this. this is, yeah, yeah. I think kids this. have a, I think that they think there is something out there. So they're closer to coming from wherever it is than we are. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> okay. And second question, the show simulation. So we must ask you, are we in a simulation? Well, I think that I, I'm real. This is me. I'm real. I'm not being simulated. But um, I guess there are opportunities to simulate me, but uh, this, this is the real thing. <laughs> I love your show, and I love the simulation. <laughs> Thank you for asking. <laughs> this is a very good uh, thought experiment to run in so many other th ways as well. Simulate what it's like to have life evolve on a planet and what would happen if certain variables were tweaked a little bit about how a civilization evolves. Maybe it would be, it's so interesting to think about that because mm -hmm. we are in a process now of tweaking our planet. Yes. We're not doing it at you know, it's not intentional, it's because of the climate issues. Yeah, the Anthropocene. Yeah. And so it's changing a lot, and it will continue to change. And um, so, there's an interesting, that's a very interesting question. Yeah, yeah, running these is, is very good. I hope we get more young people running um, these thought experiments as, as simulations and seeing what it can do to, um, to uh, enhance their creativity and imagination. The last question, 
we like to ask. Okay. What is the most beautiful thing in the world? The most beautiful thing in the world. I think it's birth and spring and life. Every spring and every birth represents beauty for all of us and hope. Beauty and hope. And that's what makes the world a better place when we have hope and we don't lose it. That's it. So well said. <laughs> Esther, thank you, thank you, thank you. This has been such an honor. Well, thank you. We're so, so deeply appreciative of you coming onto the program oh, and teaching us. Honestly, it's great being here. Thank you so much for, for inviting me, my God. <laughs> <laughs> the, the work is so crucial for our world and we, we hope, please everyone, we check out How to Raise Successful People. The link is in the bio to all of Esther's work. Go and check out the work. The book is $10 cheaper as pre-order, which is $18 right now. It becomes $28 on May 7th. 7th. So get the book early, pre-order the book, everyone. Also, give us your thoughts in the comments below. We would love to hear from you. Teach us about what you were thinking about this episode. Go and talk to more people, your family, your friends, your communities. Get them starting with this trick pedagogy. Get it disseminating to more people. Let's start practicing this around the world. Esther's already teaching this around the world and spreading it. Let's keep doing it together. Support the artists and entrepreneurs that you believe in. You have us here at Simulation. If you believe in us, our links are below. Support us, help us grow. Support the other ones in your communities, the young people, support them being artists and entrepreneurs as well. Huge shout out to Ron Vogus, our producer and director. We love you very much. Thank you, thank you. Build the future. Manifest your dreams into the world, everyone. We love you so much. Thank you for tuning in and we will see you soon. Peace.